The Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. It's very difficult to appreciate fully what it means for us to be a Christian. Quite often we are like Agrippa and we are listening to someone present the message of becoming a Christian. And what is involved in that? The hearing of the gospel that one must do in order to believe, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. The faith that one must have in God and in his ability to reward those who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. As well as to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8 and verse 24. For a person to confess that they believe that he is the Christ as the eunuch did in Acts 8 and verse 37. Then to be baptized in water for the remission of sins, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Acts 22, and verse 16. This morning, I'd like for us to consider three essential elements to be a Christian. There's something that is essential means that it is indispensable. It's not a matter of option. It's not a matter of choice. It's something that one must do. And there are so many aspects of being a Christian that identify us that I'm not going to be able to deal with every one of them. There are so many things I could think of that are specifics. Like, for instance, John 13, verses 34 and 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you have love for one another. That is a mark, that is a characteristic of a person who is a Christian. But this lesson is going to address three very broad areas that must be in the life of every Christian. I want us to look at the conscious, the conduct, and the communication. Let's begin, first of all, with the idea of the conscience. And uh, for those of us who may not fully grasp it, I want you to know what your conscience is. It's that part of your mind that approves or disapproves of any action that you perform. For instance, if there is a little old lady who's having difficulty maybe toting her groceries and you see her in the parking lot of a, of a grocery store and you go up and you say, let me help you, and you take that load and you carry that load for her and place it in her car and help, you, help her, there's a part of your mind that says, I did a good deed. I did something that's praiseworthy. On the other hand, if you have a good friend and your good friend is being berated by others and you stand there and you say nothing and you do nothing, then after that event is over, you feel, I should have stood up for him. I should have done something for him. 
It's that part of our mind that either approves of or disapproves what we have done. For instance, I want to carry you to two passages in the book of Romans which make this perfectly clear. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul is talking about the Gentiles and he says, "...who show the work of the law written in their hearts..." Now notice carefully, their conscience bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Their thoughts are either I am doing what I am supposed to be doing or I am not doing what I am not supposed to be doing. When you get to Romans 14, Paul applies that principle with regards to the eating of meats among those who are Christians. Some believe that it was okay to eat any and all the meats. Others believe that you could only eat vegetables. And Paul says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. If I were to eat meat and I believed it was only appropriate to eat vegetables, my conscience would say, you did wrong. Paul says, happy is the man, blessed is the man that does not condemn himself and what he approves. However, my conscience and your conscience can be hardened to the point where it no longer functions properly. And let me give you a couple of instances with regards to that as well. When Paul wrote the young preacher Timothy, he was trying to warn him about some seducing spirits and doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. How that they could be so insidious that they could come in and they could cause people to do things they would not ordinarily do. And once you start practicing them, then they become ingrained in your character. And he says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That's the point where you no longer care because it's been seared. It has no feeling. When you get to Ephesians 4 verse 19, Paul would say, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. People who become past feeling. Now, upon becoming a Christian, We clean our conscience. You know, before you become a Christian, you look back on your life and you realize every sin that I have ever committed in my whole lifetime is laid to my charge. Every one of them. No person who is not a Christian, a person who's not a Christian, cannot have a clear, complete conscience. Let me illustrate to you. Peter writes, there's an antitype which now saves us. An antitype talking about the flood and baptism. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. You see, what we're doing when we are baptized, we're not taking off the physical dirt of our body. We are taking off the understanding in our mind that all of those sins that we have committed have been washed away. 
Do you know what a relief that is? For a person when they come up out of that water to think, I don't have to worry about any sin that I've ever committed in the past. They are all forgiven. Folks, that is a tremendous thought. But you see, every child of God must seek to live every day with a clear conscience. That is, for me to have a clear conscience means to say that every day I am doing what I believe and I know the Scriptures teach that I ought to do. Let me give you a couple of illustrations from Paul. In Acts 23, in verse 1, he says, Then looking intently or earnestly at the council, he said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul had always acted with what he believed the Scriptures taught. Now, he had been taught inaccurately, but he believed that. But afterwards, he said in Acts 24, verse 16, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I strive every day to live so that my mind does not condemn me toward what I've done toward God and what I do toward you. Being a Christian means that our minds are such that I am studying God's Word and I am striving every day to do what it says to do. I want you to listen to Paul as he writes Timothy again. He's going to talk to him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, verse 19, or verse 5, verse 19, and then chapter 3 and verse 9 about this clear conscience. He says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Three things, he says there, all three synonyms, if you will. Pure heart. He doesn't have any bad in his heart, any ill will. Good conscience, knowing what he has done is in harmony with God and sincere faith. Verse 19, he's talking about some who didn't hold on to that. Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. You know, one of the things that I guess you might say preoccupies my mind, this is something I, I literally worry about every day. What about our brethren that are leaving the Lord and leaving the church. What about the those who are departing from the faith? What's going on in their minds? Why are they leaving? Paul tells Timothy it's when their conscience smites them and they don't listen to it. They're not keeping that good conscience. And that also relates to what we teach as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, Holding the mystery of the faith and a pure conscience. That is, you and I hold what we believe dearly, and we're convinced of it. Over the past couple of months, I've learned of two brethren, very talented men, that have decided they preachers of the gospel. 
who've given up and become agnostics. And I am wondering, how could a man get in a pulpit, preach a lesson, teach God's Word, and then somehow come along and say, I don't believe it? Folks, here's something important. If you are going to be a Christian, it is essential that you have a good conscience, that you know the truth, you believe the truth, and you live it. In Titus 1 and verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. I'm going to tell you it's hard to overestimate the importance of the conscience, this function of the mind, and how you and I ought to live with a good conscience every day. Number two, conduct. Conduct matters unless you're a universalist or Calvinist. You might say, what do you mean universalist or Calvinist? Universalist believes that everybody is going to be saved regardless of what they do. The God's this great loving God to such a degree that He will ignore and that He will overlook any sin in anyone and that everybody will be saved. There are people who believe that. There are those who are Calvinists who follow the teachings of John Calvin who believe in this what is sometimes referred to as once saved, always saved. Once in grace, always in grace. But what they mean by that is that there is nothing that a person can do so as to be eternally lost. If that's true, conduct doesn't matter. God's going to save you regardless. But when I go to the New Testament, I see that conduct does matter. For instance, Philippians 1 and verse 27 only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Make sure that the life that you live is worthy of and honor of what Jesus did for you. You and I are Americans. What we do reflects on our country. There are times when we're traveling overseas, I see us as Americans do things that just really embarrass me. And it embarrasses our country. There are times when people who are Christians do things and their life does not reflect being worthy of the gospel of Christ. When Paul wrote Timothy, here's a young preacher. And as a young preacher, Paul says... Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Timothy, show by the way you live. I am proud of many of our young people here at this congregation because when you look at their lives, it reflects a conduct Worthy of the gospel. I commend these young people for that. And yet so many people in this world claim to be Christians but don't live like it. Hebrews 13 and verse 7, looking 
toward the other end of the spectrum, those who are a little older, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. I look at some of the older saints in this congregation, people who have lived devoutly, and look at the conduct of their life, and look how it turns out. I go to funerals, and sometimes it's joyous, and I hate to put it that way, but sometimes it's joyous to see a faithful Christian's life lived with many years and the joy that is in the heart of the family knowing that they have a greater inheritance ahead of them. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Looking at eternity, we ought to be good people. Do you know, people are able to look at us and judge us by the conduct we have. For instance, when you study the book of James, his main theme is simply this. If you are going to call yourself a Christian, call yourself religious, that ought to show in your life. It'll show when a man says that I'm in need, and you say, well, be warmed and filled, and you don't give them anything. That doesn't help them very much. He will say that faith without works is dead. You get to chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You show people that you are honorable in your conduct. 1 Peter 2, 12. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by their good works, which they behold or observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Live so that people who are even the haters of the Lord and the Lord's people won't have anything bad to say about us. And then chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you have the picture of a woman who is a Christian... And her husband is not a Christian. And here's the way that she is able to influence him. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Here's a man, not a Christian. He looks at his wife. He sees in her good honorable, faithful conduct. And he says, being a Christian is the right thing to do. Titus 2, 6 and 7, he looks at the younger men, he says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded and all things showing yourself as a pattern of good works and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility people are looking at us when we work in our jobs when we go about our daily activities when we are at our recreation and they are judging whether or not our lives represent 
a pattern of good works or a pattern of evil works. We have a calling to live up to. And Colossians, or excuse me, Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Number three is communication. I think a lot of times people are really convinced that you can do something if you hurt somebody physically. But I don't know if people recognize the power that is in the words of man. Proverbs 18.21 said, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can take someone and say things that are mean, harsh, and cutting, and you can destroy a person. I've seen young people that when you talk to them, they hang their head. They hang their head because all they've ever known is being berated. They've never had an encouraging word. You see, the tongue has a tremendous power And what one says frequently is as powerful as what a person does. You know, we we want to do mission work. We want to be evangelistic. We want to reach our neighbors and our friends, and we want them to feel welcome to come into our buildings to be able to hear God's Word taught. Listen to Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace. Season with a little salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. What is Paul telling the Colossians? When you speak, speak with favor. Be kind to people with your words. Titus 2 verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that no one who is an opponent may be ashamed, or that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. We need to be careful that the words we use are such that nobody could ever say that we have a bad attitude or that we have spoken out of turn. Proverbs 15, verse 2 and verse 4 The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pour forth foolishness. Verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but a perverseness is it, it breaks the spirit. Psalm 126, verse 2, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with singing, Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. I knew this verse was coming. And as we were singing this morning, I thought about this verse and about how that the singing, in my judgment, sounded beautiful. How that you could hear the voices blending all over the congregation. If our hearts were engaged with what our voices were doing, I think God was truly pleased. But you you look at this picture. Our mouth is filled with laughter. There's happiness there. Our tongue with singing. People will say, the Lord's done great things for them. 
How do you reflect out of what you say, your communication? Are you happy what the Lord has done for you? Or are you sour on life? One who fails to control his speech is deceiving himself. You know, here I'm saying I'm I'm a Christian. I'm religious. James 1 and verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. You want to be a real Christian, you've got to watch what you say. And as a Christian, not only must I watch what I say, but how I say it as well. You know, David was faced with challenges almost on every turn. Especially after he committed sin with Bathsheba, it seemed that everywhere he turned, people were looking to take advantage of David's situation. He sowed the seeds of it, but David had to respond correctly with it. He said in Psalm 39:1, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. You know, there's a lot of ways for us to communicate. And that's the reason why I chose the word communicate rather than just speech. Because one of the things that has become a very popular tool in our society today is social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or any a number of other ways. It's very easy for us to express our anger, our frustration at the problems of life. And David is saying, while the wicked is before me, I'm going to have to put a muzzle on my mouth so I don't say things I ought not say. James would always also say, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. We need to be careful of what we say and how we say it. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-three: whoever guards his mouth and keeps his tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Being a Christian is about three things. About what we think, about what we do, and about what we say. God is watching and so is the world. They're looking at us and you think about that passage, Acts 26, verse 28. Almost you persuade me to become a Christian. And I look around and I realize a lot of people are deciding whether to become a Christian on the basis of what they see and hear in me. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you're not a Christian, why are you not a Christian? What is it that is holding you back? Is it because you've seen someone else and you realize they're not perfect? You won't be perfect either. But there's one thing that you can begin with. You can begin with a clear conscience knowing that everything behind me, everything past me is now 
gone. And it's clear. The song, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary, is an appropriate song for that. But if you're a Christian, you've got to look at yourself and say, am I living the life that I have been called to live? Am I honest in my heart, living the way I know I ought to be living? Is my influence on others what it ought to be, or am I causing others to stumble and fall? This invitation song is to encourage you while together we stand and sing.